It's time to meet a few more of our mighty women, protectors, providers, parents. In order for it to be right, you have to really want it in your heart. You have to know what you're getting into, and um, it almost has to become a passion. You know, like you said, artist passion or music passion. You know, when my passion is taking care of wounded, my passion, some people's passion is flying. Some people's passion is uh, maintenance, you know, whatever whatever their job is. Mm-hmm. And some people are soldiering. You know, if you want to be a soldier, then I say go out there and do it. Welcome to the journey. I am your host, Neville D'Angelo. Along the journey, we stop at intriguing places and meet fascinating people with novel solutions to some of life's tricky questions. And we play a few games and track the remarkable characters of three classic books, A Soundbite Life, Flight of the Fused Monkeys, and Illicet, A Time to Begin Again, all of which can be found on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Thank you, Ari. That's middle distance runner and uniquely hilarious Ari Perez. In my book, Illicet, A Time to Begin Again, that is Illicet, spelt I-L-I-C-E-T, Illicet, A Time to Begin Again, I mentioned that I'm acquainted with a few mighty women, and I went on to honor them. We are honoring our mighty women, women who have used their intelligence, imagination, sense of wonder, and tenacity to make extraordinary contributions, especially in the fields of science, technology, engineering, math, and the arts. Our theme is Women Inspiring Innovations Through Imagination. Joining us to honor their mighty women on these four segments of our journey are Mistress Paulette Ragabeer, lecturer at the University of Guyana, Major Jewel George of the United States Air Force, romance author Carolyn Bell of Nottingham, England, and Dr. Keith Yearwood, lecturer of the University of Maryland. Then you will be in for another great treat as Dr. David Jenkins, professor and head of department at Texas Christian University, and Bruce Carter of American Airlines share with us their most remarkable journey. My guest today is Major Jewel George of the United States Air Force. Major, welcome to the journey. Major Jewel George responded to the call for doctors and nurses during the Gulf War and has served since then on the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. In addition to highlighting for us those mighty folks that have inspired her both personally and as an officer, she will discuss a number of military issues related to war, mental health, particularly PTSD, sexual assault, and service to country. For fair warning, we'll be dealing with some very tough issues related to war. 
I asked Major George to take us back to her assignment in Germany as she was receiving wounded heroes. So my job was to uh, be the OIC, OIC is officer in charge, mm. of the Contingency Air Force Staging Unit. So mm. Contingency Air Force means, um, again, uh, the staging, we stage patients, you know, coming back from the war. It's pretty much it's like a holding facility so we can take care of them while they're in route going back home to to the United States. So, And that was my first, actually, two assignments. I was there, then I went back six months later in 2004 in the August. So I was there from September, October, November, December, and I left the first week of January 2005. Mm-hmm. That deployment in Germany, again, I was doing the exact same thing. I was an OIC officer in charge, again, on the night shift, uh, half on the day shift. So there's like two months on day shift, two months on night shift, uh, taking care of the same hundred patients. Um, only thing we moved over into a trailer. We got off the basketball court. They put us in a trailer. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it's pretty much taking care of the wounded coming back. But we had a, a lot more casualties coming in because um, whenever there's a fierce battle, mm-hmm. and the fierce battle they had during that time was called Fallujah, the Battle of Fallujah, mm-hmm. uh, Fallujah, Iraq. Right. And it's the worst battle of the, the entire war uh, in Iraq. Mm. We lost 240 in one month mm. uh, fatalities, and it was over 1,200 casualties in one month. Wow, wow. Since this was in Germany, why did it have to be a basketball court or a gym um, uh, and not a hospital? Well, again, the staging facility, the, the Air Force base is 45 minutes away from our Army base, which is the hospital. Gotcha. So we took the worst ones to the hospital. The oh. hospital was full. All right, okay. So the staging facility, again, is just the walking wounded. All right, all right. Because you're getting thousands of casualties. We get, like, anywhere from... A thousand or fifteen hundred casualties a month. Mm-hmm. So you're constantly getting guys in, and you're constantly sending guys back home. Mm. So you had to have somewhere to put them. So that's why um, they they did not plan, as we should say, properly for the number of casualties that this war produced. Let's say it like that. They actually plan for more fatalities, which. Uh, I guess you could say it's a good thing they didn't have more. They didn't expect us medics to be as good as we are. Mm-hmm. And this war, whereas we had a lot of casualties in the um, in the Vietnam War, this mm-hmm. war actually has fewer casualties. I mean, fewer fatalities, but more casualties and more disabled. If you, if that makes sense. Yes, it does. It does. Mm. Yeah, because um, we save them. In other words, the medics, doctors, nurses, and medical technicians, if they can get them to us, we we have a 98%, what we call it, live rate. Mm-hmm. You know, if, we, if they get to a medic, we will make sure they don't die. In other words, I ain't losing <laughs> anybody. Good. I have to cover over 16,000 patients. Mm. And all the patients that I took care of, nobody died. That's my motto. Nobody dies under Major George, okay? Mm. But then again, I'm not taking care of very seriously wounded patients. Yes. I'm taking care of guys who got shot in the leg, got shrapnel, you know. Some of the patients we took care of did have their leg off. But, I mean, again, they're still talking. 
they're still, you know, able to get up in a wheelchair and roll around. They just got a leg off, you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. But the seriously wounded ones, the ones that needed surgery or needed constant care, those we would evacuate straight out the plane. They wouldn't even come to the gym. They would go straight on the bus or straight to the hospital. And then that crew would take them at the hospital. Then our crew would pick them up again at the hospital and take them back to the plane. And then they would fly on off to the United States. So this was a constant operation, 24 hours a day, all day, every day. Uh, what about the the medics, uh, you guys? Um, was this a stress on you all, or were you... Uh, pretty much comfortable with your role. How 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 do you explain that? Oh, it was a total stretch because we didn't have enough of us. Like, um, because I I had two nurses and this was the night shift, mm. and it was three of us. So I was in charge. I was a major, and I had um a captain and a lieutenant, and that was my that was my nurses. And then I would have a lot of technicians. Mm-hmm. I had about fifteen technicians. This does a lot of things with people who are not, as we say, professionals. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that doesn't mean they're not good in their role, but they'd be more like aides. Mm-hmm. So our sergeants, some of our sergeants are very good, and then some of our airmen are good, but they still have to be guided, especially with with uh, more technical things, let's say, like that. Mm-hmm. 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 Now, so, so how... Um, our standard in the, in fact, it's interesting because that's the Air Force. We actually had nurses, and when the general, most of our casualties were Army, uh, of the nurse corps of the Army came to visit our castle at the Air Force, she actually thanked me. She said, you actually have nurses taking care of our patients. And I said, yes, ma'am, because at the Army base, where they had their castle, well, it wasn't the castle, but where they had their whole different facility, if you want to say, where they had their walking wounded, they had one nurse for everybody. They didn't have her taking care of patients. She was just over the whole thing, if you want to, if, if that makes any sense. They had yeah. all enlisted people taking care of patients. Hmm. So they didn't have any nurses taking care of them, but we actually had nurses taking care of them, but not a lot. Well, the Iraq war eventually wound down um, um, on the a new president, on the President Obama, um, uh, but the Afghanistan war picked up. Um, how was your role in that transition from the Iraq to Afghanistan? I actually was in um, Kuwait in 2009, and uh, the Iraq war was winding down, if you want to say. Um, it's, it's very interesting that the number of casualties that, that we are losing the war as the war goes on is not, this is surprising probably to a lot of your listeners, but it's not with the enemy. Hmm. And when I say the enemy, I mean the Taliban or, um, you know, the, the foreign occupiers, you know, hmm. but it's actually suicide. The number one casualty really? is suicide. Hmm. And it's because of stress. I happen to be a mental health nurse, and the people have so much stress, they can't take it, and they feel like that's the only way that they can relieve their stress is a tunnel vision, and they, they just take their own life. 
So let me let, let me see if I heard this right. You're saying that we had more casualties. Fatalities, not casualties. Is still alive. Fatalities. Yes, yeah, we have more fatalities due to suicide than to the actual so events of the war. Wow. I and that's, that's toward the end of the war. Now, when the war was hot and heavy, 2004, 2005, 2006, the turning point is when George Bush put in what they call the surge troops in 2007. Mm-hmm. And then 2008 is when it started to go down the other way. Right. But um, ever since, I would say, 2008, 2009, 2010, 2011, there have been more suicides. The Army was having one per day. Wow. That's how many that's how many suicides they were having. Um and yeah. now it's still that's true that there's more fatalities for suicide in the army and the Marine Corps and the Air Force, I mean all the services than it is from enemy kills. So I, I my thing as a mental health nurse, I say is who is the true enemy? And we being a Christian, I would say, well, Satan is the true enemy. If he can get inside of your head and make you kill yourself, then that's the enemy. Mm-hmm. So that makes our job even harder. And um, they start recognizing this maybe, again, oh, nine, I was in Kuwait, and they start having suicide prevention uh, training for every unit. Mm-hmm. So every unit start having the, the training uh, we call it resiliency training, you know, learning how to be stronger, learning how to take stress, pressure, learning how to survive and thrive mentally, you know, because so much of what the military puts on us is the physical, but people need to have to understand how to be strong mentally. Mm-hmm. That is, um, again, that is what's having people's uh, killing. That's what's killing them. Do you think that in part or in any way is it due to improper training prior to going to war? In other words, we we train folks to be physically capable of executing the war, but not of defending themselves personally. Um, is is that an issue, or is that? Um, yeah, and that personally is the resiliency. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's also with the generational. Mm-hmm. Um, the, a lot of our younger people are, are millennials, mm-hmm. uh, as we call them, from that generation, and not necessarily from the baby boom generation. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, a lot, if, if if you look at different uh, cohort generational, you know, you have um, the baby boomers whose parents were the depression age generation, and they taught them hardcore, where they may not have to live it themselves, or some of them did, but a lot of them would have to hear the stories, in other words. Mm-hmm. But whereas the millennials haven't had either one. They haven't had it hard, and they haven't um, heard the stories direct. So um, a lot of parents um, believe everybody's a winner. You know, you'll hear that. Mm-hmm. Nobody is a loser. Mm-hmm. Well, when you go to war, they are definitely losers, okay? Mm-hmm. They are definitely hard times. And if you don't have that mental capability to deal with that, with loss, mm-hmm. with multiple losses, mm-hmm. 
And that is, and a lot of it isn't just losses on the battlefield. A lot of it is home losses. Mm. Because while things are going on on the battlefield, things are constantly going on at home. Mm. So a lot of uh, a lot of high divorce rates. A lot of people lose their families. Mm. And um, the military doesn't send you home for those type of things. Mm. And a lot of people can't handle that. Um, is, is there any um, push to resolve? I'm assuming there is going to be a great push, or there has been a great push to resolve some of these issues. Is that true or not? Well, under President Bush, it was again another outfunded mandate. They said that we need 25% more mental health uh, people out in the field mm -hmm. or in the military. Mm -hmm. So that went out as a um, what do you call it, a thing to the Pentagon. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's unfunded. You have to have the fund. And then also you have to have the people trained and you have the people wanting to come into the military um, that are in those fields. Mm -hmm. So uh, we don't have enough nurses, period. There's not enough nurses in the military, period. And there's not enough mental health nurses, period. So... You add all those three up, that's why, again, I was the only nurse for 100 patients. Hmm. Well, you, you keep mentioning uh, President Bush, and obviously be, because that was started with the Iraq war, but has anything changed now that we've got President Obama in, in office? Well, I mean, again, the time he came in in 2008... Um, well, he came he, in in 2009, actually. Yeah, well, January 2009, he won the election in November 2008, mm -hmm. and he came in January 2009. Again, I was in Kuwait. I was watching the inauguration in, from Kuwait, mm -hmm. and it was kind of like a foreign, I couldn't even believe what was happening. But uh, mm -hmm. um, he had won, and it was a lot of people who I was over there with had mixed feelings. Let me say it like that. Mm -hmm. First African-American president, um... Some of the people were birthers, some of the people um, didn't want to be, but when you're in the military, you can't speak badly about the president. You like him or you don't like him. And since I was in 20 years, it's been both sides. I've been under Republican presidents and Democratic presidents, and that's one of the reasons I'm a, I'm a registered independent, so it's easy for me. Uh, I think it's good ideas on the Democratic side and good ideas on the Republican side. Mm -hmm. And nobody has all the right ideas. They both get it wrong and they both get it right. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's easy for me to say that because I've seen it in, in terms of military things. I think domestic things, people, I think people have more of a affinity to that. And I don't think people vote much on military stuff. I really don't. Mm -hmm. If it's war... Like, the wars have been going on, like I said, since uh, October 2011. I mean, one, 2001, when he, when he went into... Actually, people left that night. I always tell people, 9-11, the, the, the gas was already forward. They left that night. Hmm. I know people that left that night. So, really, the war started, but he declared war in October 2001, in October. Hmm. That's when he got on TV and actually put the declaration out and signed it and all that. But And then March of 2003, that's when they went into Iraq. But uh, President Obama, he was always against the Iraq war, um, and he downsized it. 
but he initially uh, had to up what they call surge again. He had to give more troops because, again, what people don't understand is you want to dominate, you know, your opponent. You don't want to just go in there and play around with it. And people think you want to be there forever. You actually want to get in and get out. So the fact that these wars are taking so long because we didn't have enough troops, period. And that's that's really what it is. We just didn't have enough troops. Hmm. Some people have called for uh, uh, what is a draft, but I do think President uh, Obama and President Bush got that right. No draft. That would have been the worst thing they could have done. <laughs> Because, uh, again, with the millennials, they thought they had uh, draft dodgers and they had problems with the with the Vietnam War. But it would have been worse because people would have just said, I'm not going. And if they wanted to came in, they would have made it uh, very difficult. Let me say it like that. Hmm. We had a hard enough time with the ones, like I said, that signed up. Uh, we had... Um, this is the first war that they used um, the National Guard directly in the war at the numbers. You know, they always use them in, like, very small numbers, and they'd always have them, like, back. Back means, like, in Germany or in Poland or in, you know, Czechoslovakia, places that are not the actual war place. Mm -hmm. uh, they would do what we call backfield. So if I'm leaving from Travis Air Force Base, they'll come to Travis Air Force, take my job, and then I would go as an active duty member. But this one, they put them directly into it. Well, the problem with that is you have somebody that's doing a job one week in a month. They're expected to do the same uh, job every single day, mm. all day. And... Um, they performed brilliantly, I will say that, to their capability, but they just didn't have the capability. I see. So, um, the people who are doing it on the civilian level, like medics, medics are doing a civilian job, it's still different because you're not used to doing trauma wounds. Mm -hmm. And even me as an active duty, I wasn't, I had to get used to doing a lot of trauma wounds. Mm -hmm. So, um, a normal nurse in a hospital in America, even if you're in the ER, you're not used to taking care of guys that just ran over IED and got their leg blown off or their hand blown off or they had the head blown off, you know. Mm -hmm. That's not what you used to take care of. Mm -hmm. But you have to get used to taking care of them. You have to get used to taking care of a lot of it. So you were dealing with them, with soldiers, both on the, uh, I don't know if I'm using the right term, on the medical side, on on the psychiatric side? Well, again, because I was doing transport. I was going, everybody had to come in. It doesn't matter how minor or how major your womb is. Now, the major ones, they have what they call critical care teams with them. Mm. So my job in taking care of the critical care team is making sure they have enough oxygen, making sure they have enough um equipment, making sure they have enough uh, blood, making sure they have whatever they need to take care of that patient. Mm. So uh, when they hit that plane, when they get that land out of Germany, I have to have whatever they need at that plane right there. Mm. And then again, we put them on the bus, on the ambulance bus, and again, they just, care is in route. That's the thing, it's not, 
you just when you stabilize them and then get them on the plane, care is constant. So whether it's on the goes from Afghanistan, they have to get an ambulance, they have to get on the plane, they have nurses and doctors on the plane, they have nurses and doctors on the bus when they get to Germany, they have to take them to the hospital, they have to take them back to the ambulance, back to the plane, back. So it's a lot of coordination. Mm-hmm. And that was pretty much our job, was coordinating every single time that plane lands. And the plane would land with anywhere from 50 to 120 wounded. Mm. So you have walking wounded and then you have the litters, the patients that are on stretchers. And those would be more severe wounds. Um, you have the nurses in the plane, the flight crew. Um, the, they have a flight doctor on the plane. And now they're running constantly. They're taking care of them on the plane. When that plane lands, they become my responsibility. My responsibility is getting them where they have to be. So when they go on the buses, I have to have a nurse on every bus. I have to have so many technicians on every bus. I have to have, I have, to have blankets. I have to have oxygen. I have to have pain pills. I have to have everything on every bus and every ambulance for every patient. Mm-hmm. And you say, well, how do I know? Because what we get is what we call a patient movement request for every patient. So say a patient got blown up in Afghanistan yesterday. I get a patient movement request within 12 hours. Mm-hmm. They will be landing in Germany at a such and such a time. They are going to need oxygen. They're going to need blood. They're going to need this when they hit the ground. I have to have that there. And uh, my nurses, they get on the bus. uh one bus holds 13 patients, uh, litters, stretchers, mm-hmm. and they're on a bunch of 13 patients. Or if they're walking wounded, it'll hold 30 walking wounded. But they're, again, they're dragging their leg, they're dragging their arm, wherever part was hit. Mm-hmm. You know, they're again, and those are the ones that's coming with me, like I said, to the contingency and stadium facility or the gym mm-hmm. or the makeshift hospitals. Mm-hmm. And then my nurses are taking the other ones up to the hospital, like I said, 45 miles away, um, to get treated. And then the same thing on the return trip. Uh, some people don't make the return trip because some of them died in the hospital in Germany. Um, I just said I didn't have any down me thinking this uh, during the transport. But some of them did die in the hospital in Germany. Some of them died on the plane before they got there. Some of them died on the plane after we put them on there. And they were flying across the ocean back to the United States. So mm. they died at every point except with us. Mm. We they never died, and I took care of sixteen thousand. I never had one die. So I don't know that's just good fortune with the Lord. But my crew, and um, we actually worked the night shift and the day shift. You know, we work uh, sixty hours a week. Work twelve hour shifts, five days a week. So. And then we still come in on off days. It's a heavy low casualty. So it's a lot of casualties. One, one three day, one three week time. We worked every single day wow. because that was the illusion. We worked three weeks straight, twelve hour, fourteen hour, sixteen hour shifts. One couple of times I did a twenty four hour shift. That was pretty hard. <laughs> but they get no more days, hours in a day in twenty four hours. So, <laughs> and it was constant wounded. Hmm. But it's the most rewarding thing. That's the thing. It's most rewarding. Yeah. T- talk to us about that. What What is rewarding about it? Well, again, as a nurse, you're taking care of 
people who, one, are extremely grateful. You don't always get that here in the United States. Mm-hmm. You're taking care of people who are extremely glad to be alive. Mm-hmm. Um, they're glad to be out of the war. They're, I mean, when they hit down in Germany, I would literally have guys hit kids to go out. Or when they hit that, when they, when they, um, hit Andrews Air Force Base in America, they literally would twist the ground to be back in America soil. Mm-hmm. But they just were out of the war. And the fact that they were alive, they were just so happy. Like, a cheer would go up on the plane when they when the, they would hit. You know, and they would, when the back of the uh, plane would open, mm-hmm. and you could just hear them, they were just happy to be alive and be there. They had made it. Quote, unquote, they had made it. Mm-hmm. So... And they were glad they were hurting. We passed out of many pain pills, and like I said, did a lot of IVs and a lot of wounds and a lot of dressing changes. But um, and then the mental wounds. You know, we talk a lot about the physical wounds because they're so prevalent. Mm-hmm. But the mental wounds are still there too. Um, a lot of people have uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, it's a a video now that's going on, I don't know if you've heard of it, it's called Invisible War, mm-hmm. and it's talking about sexual assault in the military. I talked to several people who have been sexually assaulted and raped, mm-hmm. both men and women, and um, not by the enemy, by their own people. Mm-hmm. So that's another thing that's going on. Um, some people who, again, who had tried to kill themselves, as other mental health nurses, a lot of people tried to overdose. A lot of people had shot themselves. They hadn't been shot by the enemy. They had shot themselves, but they still live. So you still got to take care of the wounds, but you also got to take care of the mental, because then they're mad that they didn't die. Hmm. They still want to die. And now they're shot, so they're even worse off. Hmm. So you have to deal with all of those things. We'll be right back. Here is Junine Kay sharing her poem, I Am Woman. Forget 
Are you satisfied with the attempts being made on both fronts that you mentioned, on the PTSD front and on the sexual assault front? Definitely not on the sexual assault front. I don't think enough is being done on that for sure. Um, and when people ask me, well, what more can be done? Uh, my last opponent was in Kuwait, and one of the things that happened there was, I think cameras can be used, even if you can't catch the perpetrator right in the act, a lot of times they can find out who it was after. And I don't think that they utilize that. But why do it? Again, my first duty session in March, he had a, um, uh, well, let me just say, when I got to March, it was two days after the Rodney King riots, and they had uh, pulled Reginald Denny out of the truck. So they were, they were this was in 92 in June. Um, so what he did was he put up cameras because he didn't want race riots to be starting out on the base because it was starting to be a black-white thing. And he found out exactly who was doing what. And I think that if they did that, kept put up cameras in certain locations, that they could catch a lot of these perpetrators. Now, why is it why is it it's so prevalent? Is it lack of training? Is it um, for an outsider, uh, the impression you have of the military it's still surprising that I know that we still have human beings in there, um, but why is it so? Is it as prevalent as we think it is? Well, when you say it's prevalent, I mean the prevalence is not as high as the prevalence in the civilian society. Mm. But you shouldn't it have it anyway. At all. <laughs> right. Right. So, so, so um, is you think it's lack? novice here, but in a sense, if they're not trained to deal without sex, without uh, drugs, without um, without alcohol, and suddenly you're sending them off and making them sign that they would abstain them. When you say that, though, they do go to training before they go to the war. I know, but tra- is it training just to instruct them not to do this, or is this training? No, 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 no. I, I, just to finish the question, there's a, ver- a big difference between telling somebody not to do something and they don't want to do it, and telling them how not to do something. Uh, they find themselves in a situation where they don't know how to avoid doing it. Those are two different things in my mind. Well, they're not in the military's mind. Because <laughs> if you can prevent yourself, 
not to drink. You are not supposed to have alcohol. You actually have to break the law to get alcohol. I know, That's but here's here's where I'm, I'm I'm the reason I'm pushing this is not I'm not trying to I'm trying to find out where if there's a weak link. If a person is accustomed to drinking alcohol, um, they get into the military. They suddenly find their self in a situation in war. They're told that they're not supposed to drink alcohol. It's easy for us to say then they just stop. But we know with human beings. If they're accustomed to drinking coffee, you can't tell them just stop. Um, so much less things like alcohol and all of that. So what I'm asking is, uh, do they get trained to to abstain long before they get into the war situation, or are they just forced to to sign a form which tells them it's now illegal for you to do it? Well, again, not there. They don't get it. They don't get that form there. They get it before they go to training. That's what I'm saying. They usually get 30 days training before they even go to the war zone. Mm-hmm. And then when they get, they go to another, like, pre-war zone where I was stationed in Kuwait. And they're stationed there for two weeks to a month before they go to the active war zone of either Kuwait or either, I mean, Iraq or Afghanistan. So, again, they've had time where they weren't supposed to drink. We, I mean, we had guys in Germany taking the last drink well, that's exactly what I, I was fearful would happen. So, in <laughs> essence, they haven't solved the problem. They have just put people on an abstinence program, which um, on the stress now, I could see... Where well, it doesn't <laughs> really affect those alcoholics. I mean, if you're an alcoholic, I would try to tell my bosses all the time, you, can't, you can tell the alcoholics being blue in the face don't drink. But they're gonna they're gonna find a way to drink. So right. that's when a lot of people find out, quote unquote, that they are alcoholics. Right, right. Right. But the other people, they just do it because they just want to do it. Mm. The people who are alcoholics, they actually have a real alcohol problem. Which a lot of people in the army actually very high, twenty right by twenty percent alcohol abusers, just not alcoholics. Mm. Mm. Now, as uh, apart from the, I mean, I don't want, I'm not dismissing it. I was going to say apart from the sexual assault issue, which I'm not dismissing at all. Um, uh, I, I want to look at the issue of women in the military. Do you feel? Did you feel entirely included? Do you feel? Is it was it a battle that had to be fought, or still has to be fought, or? I think it's different depending on your. Uh, the Army calls the MOS and the Air Force calls the specialty code, which is your job. If you are what they call a um, combat person, then I think it's different. You know, the women who are combat, I'm a medic. So actually, most medics are females. Hmm. So, you know, my boss, he was a guy, and he used to say, the good old girls club, you know, we said it's good old boys club in the military, but it's a good old girls club in the nursing corps, because it's only about 20% of the nurses are men. Mm-hmm. Um, where in the civilian world, it's probably about 10% of the nurses are men. In the military, it's probably about 20% of men. Mm-hmm. But that still leaves 80% of women. Right. When the Air Force is just the opposite in the big Air Force, you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. We have the pilots, the engineers, the 
the guys who are maintenance. Um, and the Air Force is different, too. you got to remember, uh, when I said the military, I was in the Air Force, so we always said we send our pilots to fight, okay? <laughs> and we don't, okay, which means we are support. Um, most of the Air Force is support. Mm-hmm. Our only fighting guys are the pilots, if you think about it. Mm-hmm. Whereas ground troops are just the opposite. It's mm-hmm. mostly ground troops, and then they have supporters, which will be medical, which will be chaplains, which will be lawyers, which will be logistics. Mm-hmm. So they, most of them are armies, you know, where they have a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Whereas Air Force, we're, we're a smaller force, and again, we're a much smaller we have a bigger support than we do fighting force. And even the pilots are getting smaller now because we have so many drones. I mean, we have thousands of drones now. So they're actually taking pilots out of the cockpit and putting them on a joystick. <laughs> I mean, and but they're really killing people. So it's, And you know, that's a big battle right now in the military, whether or not these are warriors. But I can tell you that they are because mentally... They're killing people, but they can't talk about it, so they're coming to us in mental health. Mm-hmm. And we've actually had some suicides from the people that's killing people, because it's not a video game, it's real life. Mm-hmm. I mean, they kill people every single day. Mm-hmm. Now, even if you're out in the field, you don't kill people every day, mm-hmm. but these people do. Mm-hmm. So, it's um, it's a whole different... It's a whole different type of warfare. Uh, uh, can you uh, let's address PTSD uh, for a moment, if you don't mind? First, can you tell us what PTSD stands for? It's a post-traumatic stress disorder. It falls under an anxiety disorder classification, and the main symptoms of uh, um, PTSD would be um, flashbacks. You know, remembering the event having to keep, uh, keep being brought up in your mind, ruminating over the events that happened during the war that caused you anxiety. Another one will be avoidance. Avoiding um, anything that will make you remember or um, cause you to uh, go back to that same place in your mind. Mm-hmm. Avoidance. Another one will be startle response. You have an exaggerated startle. So say a car backfires and you think it's gunshots, so you hit the deck, you hit the ground because you think somebody's shooting at you. Um, Another one would be um, difficulty sleeping. Okay, lack of interest, increased guilt. A lot of people have what we call survivor guilt. I survived, I'm in one piece, my buddy died or my other buddy got severely wounded. So some survival guilt in there. Lack of interest in doing things, lack of activities, lack of having fun, things that you used to want to do, you don't want to do anymore. You also have a general uh, view of the world that's like uh, hyper-vigilance, we call it. So you're constantly like in a paranoid state because when you're in a war zone, you know, you have to constantly be watching. So your eyes are scanning your visual field back and forth. And, and you almost have to have eyes in the back of your head, you know, mm-hmm. so somebody's watching your back. You know, we, we take uh, check six in the Air Force. It's like the pilot that flies, uh, flies directly behind the, the lead pilot. 
so they can watch each other type thing, you know. But um, those are the main symptoms. Um, you know, we do uh, what we call sicky caps in the military. We do sleep, interest, guilt, um, activities, normal activities. Um, uh, are still interested in having a sex life if they if they were having one if they um, not just have no interest in doing anything. But uh, those are the big ones. But it, it falls on anxiety disorder and um, people tend to be a little bit more nervous. Um, they may have physical heart palpitations. They may have some sweating. They may have some hyper. Um, um, uh, you know, breathing very hard, you're hyperventilation, you may have some hyperventilation. So all of those things, they, some people even go into panic attacks. Mm. But it doesn't need to get that bad, but some people do go into panic attacks. Now, is is is, is there a, um, an exhaustive method of, of helping these... Uh, yeah, they actually have uh, methods of helping them. Um... I think they're working on some extra ones. One of the big problems I have found with the mental health is that they use civilian mental health, um, what do I want to say, PTSD uh, interventions that do combat PTSD interventions. And it's really not the same. And the reason I say that is because when you're constantly sending somebody back to the war every day, they come to you with PTSD. So I'm a mental health provider out in the field, and I gotta send this person back out there tomorrow. It's different than I'm treating somebody for rape, or I'm treating somebody from a phobia or fear of uh, spiders, because they got bit by a spider or snakes. You know, it's a little different, because they're constantly going out the next day, the next day. They're constantly saying, it's not like a one-time event that you're helping this person get over. Mm-hmm. And I think that is the biggest difference. It's something that, um, you know, you have to help them through. I, I really think the most uh, effective people uh, in the war itself, the ones that go back and back and back, if you want to say, are the ones who are, are what we call the true believers. Mm-hmm. Because you have to really believe in the cause and in what you're doing. Um Otherwise, you know, it's going to just become nonsensical, you know, why are we doing this, you know? And Mm -hmm. it still can become that way, even if you do believe in the cause, because it can can overextend. I think people are, that's what people are right now. We've overextended our stay. Mm -hmm. Iraq war lasted nine years, and Afghanistan war went to the 12th.
more troops, four hundred thousand troops, and they wanted to do it all with special forces and um, you know anyway, that's all history. It's under the wash now, but. Mm. Is there a con- is, it, is there a concern either in the military or outside that once um, the Iraq War and uh, the Afghanistan War are wound down and you have massive uh, re- soldiers returning home uh, with the high percentage of PTSD, we have now uh, released into the society people who need help, but who um, can hurt themselves and others, or is that not a concern? Well, that, that is very much a concern, and on that front, with the veterans, we have uh, every 80 minutes a veteran kills themselves. Really? Every 80 minutes we have a veteran suicide. Really? Yeah. So every act of duty, every day is an act of duty member, and a veteran I don't know how many 80 minutes is in a day, but I guess you can do the math. Yeah. That's how many is killing themselves after they get out because we don't have, again, doctors and nurses that are trained in mental health to help these guys. And who, who needs... Um, we opened up a brand new hospital here in Vegas, mm-hmm. a $600 million hospital. This is sitting over there. They waiting to open it because they don't have enough nurses. Hmm. And there are people... And well, I'm so surprised because there, there are so many people who need jobs. I guess there are not enough qualified nurses out in in the society, or are they just not wanting to work for the military? Both. Both. All three, all of the above. <laughs> not enough in the world. Let's go to the world first. It's not enough in the United States. It's not enough in the military, and it's not enough in mental health. So, again, all of the above. Because each time you're winding down some, you know, you got, we're actually going to the Philippines. I mean, we're going to get nurses from Guam. We're going, um, and, and that's why it's so bogus, both Republicans and Democrats, like I said, they talk about this whole immigration issue. We need highly skilled and I know you know a lot about this, you yeah. know, engineers. We need highly skilled doctors, nurses. We need highly skilled people from other countries, you know, and they're, ta- they're, they're, it's like, they're like slit their own throats. I don't even understand it. That makes sense to me. Tell them, oh, we don't want these people in our country. They're taking our jobs. I'm like, are you serious? <laughs> it's crazy. Like, of course they're not. I mean, you're a chemical engineer. I mean, you're an electrical engineer. How many, how many... Like, 
Jewel George to find out who are her inspirational leaders. Depending upon where you're listening to us, we'd like to encourage you to check out Ryo Sports Radio. Ryosports.com, R-Y-O-S-P-O-R-T-S.com. Or you can check us out on WordPress, matchboxmystery.wordpress.com. And don't forget our upcoming Poets Roundtable. We'll have a lot of parts of the mic. We look forward to having you with us. So who were your inspirational leaders? When I was young, I read a book. And um, it was She Wanted to Read. And it was about uh, Mary Leo Bethune. And she started the Bethune Cookman College. And uh, again, she got all the way up to Eleanor Roosevelt's friend. But um, she was one of the, the great people that I tried to aspire to be like, yeah. if you want to say it like that. Mm-hmm. Um, another person, uh, well, I had read from Gandhi um, and Martin Luther King, um, Jesse Jackson. Um, in terms of females, uh, I really like Hillary Clinton. Well, like Claire Barton. Um, she was a nurse. Uh, Phyllis Wheatley, uh, she was a nurse. Um, uh, oh, this is one of Alexa's now favorite, is uh, they call her the Black Moses. Harriet Tugman. Uh, she was taking the people out of uh, slavery, and mm. she kept going back down to get some more people and leave them out of slavery. And if they wanted to turn back, she said, I'm going to blow your brains out. <laughs> you keep walking. And then she got them to freedom. <laughs> and that was a good story. We liked that one. Um, but, yeah, she was one of my definite favorites. Um, Harriet Tugman. Um, Eleanor Roosevelt. She was one of mine, too. What about these people was very inspiring to you, or what? the one that I don't know if your listeners would know, but um, she was a nurse, um, and she actually got a degree, again, as a black woman, it was it was pretty much unheard of, even to get to high school back in the 1800s, but she actually finished college and became a nurse, and um, very inspirational game because I'm a nurse. Mm-hmm. Another one who was a nurse, um, Mother Teresa. You know, again, um, she could have lived a life um, higher than she lived, um, but she, you know, wanted to take care of the wounded and sick in Calcutta. Mm-hmm. Also, um, when I think about, you know, the sacrifices um, of, and people ask me, you know, why do you want to do it? I was already a nurse in Chicago. Actually, I had to take a $25,000 pay cut to go into the military. Mm-hmm. And everybody in my job was like, you're going to do what? You're going to what? The military? You crazy? And uh, I mean, no, I'm not crazy. It's like, um, 
the first going in to decide your base. Every other base, they tell you where you're going. You can <laughs> you can tell them where you want to go, but that's the only time that if you say I'm not going to take that base, and you don't have to come in. So I told them I wanted Mark Air Force Base for my parents were there, and I got Mark Air Force Base. So what's inspirational to me again is people that you might not know are some of our. Uh, hospital commanders that the hospitals are named after, like Malcolm Grove and Andrews. Um, the hospital is named after him. Um, March Air Force Base, Lieutenant March, he was a lieutenant that got killed in World War One. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the bases are actually named after the hospitals are named after um, some of the heroes, um, like Half Arnold. Um, he was a, a Air Force pilot. Um, I'm trying to think of some more. Oh, Tappy James. He was our first black four-star general in the, he's the only at back, uh, first four-star black general in the Air Force. Mm-hmm. And he was back, he died in 1978. Um, we had Sean Shirtan, but he was the very first. Um, another one was the first Army black uh, general in the army, um, um, blanking on his name, uh, Benjamin O. Davis. Benjamin O. Davis was a one-star senior, and then Benjamin O. Davis Jr., uh, President Clinton, after he had retired many, many years, gave him his fourth star. He had been a hero in World War Two. He didn't get his fourth star to the 90s, mm. to the 1990s under Clinton, and he had been retired for probably over 20 years when he got his fourth star. Wow. But it was for stuff he had already done. I mean, he had led squadrons. They used to call him, they did the whole movie, I love you, saw it's called the Tuskegee Airmen, where he was the leader of that flying unit. Overcome, I think the definition for me is the people who overcome the adversity in their life um, and move on, the resiliency. Mm-hmm. Um, this is one of your, your um, this is probably, I've never heard of, but his name is Senior Airman. Brian Coppins, and I would encourage him to go to this video. It's a YouTube video, and it's called A Live Day. So they go to the YouTube video, and they pull up A Live Day, and they pull up Senior Emma Brian Coppins. It's probably the most inspirational video I show to everybody, because this is a young man who came through my castles again. I had to coordinate his uh, critical care team coming through. He lost three limbs. He lost both his legs and one of his arms. Mm. This guy was not expected to live. Mm. And he not only lived, but he's he's um, skiing. He's snow skiing. I mean, this guy is driving. He's walking downstairs. He's just amazing. And it's a YouTube video. And I encourage everybody to watch that because if I tell you, you feel like you're having a bad day, you watch that, you'll feel better. <laughs> you'll feel better. You know, but Brian can do it. I know I have a minute that Brian can do it. I know I need to get up and get do something today. <laughs> one of the problems I think that we have, one of the main problems is too many of our young people come in because they want to get college paid for or they want to get the benefits of the military. And they're just doing it. You know, it, it's really much more than a job. It's more work than you will ever do in your life. Mm. So, um, again, we work uh, 12, 14-hour shifts. 
you know, seven days a week sometimes. I mean, you're so tired when you get back to your bunk, you just fall. You know, you can't even take your uniform off. You just fall <laughs> in the bed and you just lay there until you can get up enough energy, you know, to get up and and get get the night clothes on. But it's it, it just takes every single emotion and muscle energy you have. Actually, when you're out there, most of the people are sleep deprived. Mm. Uh, so it's just really a, um, it takes everything. And it's not for everybody. So that's why I don't recommend it to everybody. Well, we really want to thank you for being on the journey and thank you even much more for your service to the nation and to the world, actually. Thank you very, very much. Um, this has been my honor. You know, we had a dinner. He used to say, you know, it's been a privilege and it's been a pleasure. And it, and it really has been. And it's an honor to serve the guys who serve, the men and women who serve. Again, thanks from the bottom of our hearts. See you all next week. <laughs>